This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. to have with us today Dr. Edward J. Moralda. He's the former U.S. Navy senior historian at the Naval Historical Center, now, of course, the Naval History and Heritage Command. And he's the author of numerous books, including of interest to us today, Shield and Sword, the United States Navy and the Persian Gulf War. He's a historian with the U.S. Naval Institute's Oral History Program as well. And as such, he conducted the interviews for the oral history of Admiral Stanley Arthur, who has much to do with today's discussion. Um, Ed wrote the cover story for the January-February issue that's out now on newsstands um, for the 30th anniversary of Operation Desert Storm. And his article, Weathering the Storm, is a great overview of what went down in those heady days of early 1991. Um, Ed, I would ask you to start by talking about how the U.S. Navy was thrown into this thing by the exigencies of events in 1990, and it was a successful undertaking, as we know in retrospect, but they really had to kind of learn a new type of uh, warfare. This is not the war they had been training for. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that leading up to this event. This is not what they'd been prepping for. Eric, in addition to working on Shield and Sword, which uh, was published by the Naval Institute in 2001, uh, prior to that time, with the Naval Historical Center at the time, uh, I had done a lot of work on the U.S. Navy in the Vietnam War. And one of the things that I learned from that experience uh, was that at the end of the war, Maine Navy basically said, okay, we've done this, it didn't work out, uh, we didn't win the war, we lost the war, in fact, and uh, we have to get back to our business as usual, which is to focus on the Soviet Navy threat, which was considered... Uh, especially high at that point. Admiral Zumo, so you know, from 70 to 74, and then Jim Holloway after him the next four years. They both said, we've got to get back to business because the Soviets are out there in the world. They have a global presence. They're testing us in all the seas, and that's going to be our mission. Um, the 70s were pretty much a lost cause. The Navy had social problems. They had financial problems, getting funding from, uh, from the DOD. And uh, so there wasn't much progress made. But as soon as the 1980s hit, as we know, with uh, Tom Hayward as CNO, uh, Secretary John Lane, the Secretary of the Navy, uh, the Maritime Strategy, the 600-ship Navy, that really turned things around. And we built a powerful, ready fleet with sailors who were then well-trained, relatively happy. And uh, by 1990, 1991, we had 15 carrier battle groups. We had four a battleship surface action groups, uh, and really advanced weapon system. Aegis was coming online with tomahawks that needed to be tested. Uh, so the Navy was in really good shape as a result of, you know, coming out of the Vietnam War and trying to 
rewrite what they thought was the, the strategic direction. And uh, come 1991, we had all these systems in place. So more than systems, though, we had the people who had been involved in the Vietnam War. Stan Arthur, you mentioned uh, I did an oral history with him, an extended oral history. And Stan Arthur flew 415 combat missions in Vietnam. I think it's one of the highest, if not the highest, totals of combat sorties. And uh, and Hank Maws, who was commander of Naval Forces Central Command before Arthur, uh, had been active on the inland waters of Vietnam. And that, that was across the board. You had Colin Powell in the Army, uh, Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf, the commander-in-chief of the Central Command, they are all Vietnam veterans, and they said, we're not going to do that again. We have to come at this. We're going to win. We have to set it up right, and we have to follow the right procedure. Uh, one of the things guiding them was the so-called Weinberger Doctrine that was put out by uh, Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger. And there were a number of things in that doctrine, but what they were, you don't go to war until you're ready to go to war. You prepare for it. Prepare for an end game. And use overwhelming force. Don't go in with just enough to get the job done. That's never enough. Uh, and so they followed that. They built up during Desert Shield to um, be ready to go to war. And when they were ready, off went, up went the balloon. And like you said, the, the one of the big points of the Weinberger Doctrine that we've probably not followed very well since 9-11, is have an end state defined. And that's something that H.W. Bush did quite well, and we're jumping ahead here. But Eric set it up well to say that for all of what you're talking about in terms of post-Vietnam era focus and laymen recapitalizing the force, and then some, you know, 600-ship Navy and, you know, carrier decks with a nice multiple of airplanes 15 carrier battle groups. One of your chapters or one of the sections of your article is called Joint Service Reluctance. So let's let's talk about that environment because to Eric's point, we entered Desert Shield, Desert Storm, let's just say not properly oriented per se. Well, the strategic outlook of the Navy, because they're preparing to fight the Soviet Navy, which would be an ocean ocean conflict, basically. Uh, this is going back to basic Navy strategy and, and operations, looking at blue ocean conflict. And um, so the Navy was really reluctant to get involved in uh, operations with the other services. And, of course, you had the uh, Goldwater-Nichols legislation in 1986, which called for more joinness. And Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, uh, was not crazy about that at all. He thought... Uh, this is not something the Navy should really get into in a big way. We've got to fight our own battles with naval leaders and, and the rest. Plus, you had a residual from Vietnam. Throughout the war, you had General Westmoreland and others who wanted to get control of the carriers, wanted to get control of the gun force support ships offshore. And so the Navy said, no, no, they didn't let it happen then, and so we're not going to let it happen again. So you had that mindset during this period, and the result was that the Navy did not really play in preparations for Middle East operations, if you will. Uh, there were a number of exercises that were run, joint exercises. The Navy was minimally involved. 
and uh, even some of the planning. The command structure reflected that as well. Uh, the thought was by Navy Central that if we get into any kind of conflict in the Middle East, we will surge forces from the Pacific and from the Mediterranean, the 7th Fleet and the 6th Fleet. We don't really need uh, a strong naval presence in the Middle East. And besides, it's run by Army, Army guys, and uh, we were loath to get involved too heavily with that. So when the balloon went up on uh, the 2nd of August with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, uh, and it was, how are we going to respond to this? Of course, the president made it clear, we will not let that stand. So the forces are going to have to surge to the area. You had to bring the commander of the 7th Fleet all the way from the Far East, the Indo-Pacific region, if you will. And a lot of forces from the 7th Fleet had to come all the way through the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, Indian Ocean, uh, into the Persian Gulf and the North Arabian Sea. Others came in from the Med. Um, so you had to bring in the commander, and he has to come hit the ground running with uh, potential Iraqi invasion of Saudi Arabia. That was something on the minds of everyone. If they don't stop in Kuwait after the 2nd, 3rd of August and keep going into Saudi Arabia, how are we going to meet this? So there was a disconnect. And even during Desert Shield, of course, uh, Hank Maws came in as Com 7 Fleet and then Commander Naval Forces Central Command. There was uh, General Schwarzkopf said, you know, I, you really should be here in Riyadh with the staff, with me, so you're close by and I can you know, help direct your operations. There was reluctance again, not only from Admiral Moss, but from Washington, from Admiral Kelso, that, well, we've got our flagship out there. He can operate from the flagship. We really don't need to do that. When Stan Arthur came in on the 1st of December, 1990, he realized right away, you know, I really should be in Riyadh. Because Schwarzkopf is directing the war. It's going to be tightly controlled from Riyadh. We need to be in better sync. And the, and the comms were not that good between Riyadh and the flagship either. Uh, but it was too late. He realized the war is going to happen. You know, I don't want to be caught in a command post shift in the middle of this thing. So he stayed on the flagship, on Blue Ridge. But um, he always thought, I, I probably should have been in Riyadh. Schwarzkopf definitely thought the Navy commander should have been in Riyadh. So that that was a problem. That's That just goes to the whole thing where the Navy saw that as a secondary theater, if you will, not as critical to what the Navy wanted to do in the Far East or in the Mediterranean. This is before there was a thing called Fifth Fleet. Your, your average active duty uh, person these days might not know that there was no fifth fleet back in desert storm. And as we've mentioned during the Emma Winnefeld episode, the other thing about the comms between the Navy and the joint command in Riyadh was, especially in terms of an aircraft carrier, the air tasking order was being written in Riyadh, could not be electronically transmitted to any of the aircraft carriers because of this thing you're talking about in terms of how jointness had been developed and the Navy was like, no, we don't need to have some Air Force piece of gear in our you know, carrier information center because we're going to fight the war with the battle group as the center of gravity, not this joint thing. In fact, you quote Lehman saying this obsession with jointness, you know, so he's like dismissive 
about the whole idea of of jointness. And I remember very much it was like icky. That was a bad word, jointness. You mean I'm going <laughs> to hang out with an Air Force guy? Why would I do that? You know. <laughs> um, and so even when it was time to send a rep into Riyadh to help write the air tasking order, you wouldn't send your talent. You know. And so as a result of all of these things. Navy was getting B and C level missions at the outset of the war, particularly. Um, never mind that Tomcats didn't have the air-to-air capability in terms of friend or foe that an F-15 had, for instance, nor did we have F-117 stealth fighters to be able to go through the integrated air defense system. Another thing that was sort of sprung on us, like, hey, you know that thing that we've been doing in the desert that nobody knew about at Tonopah? Here it is. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I was a Tomcat guy. I thought we were the baddest on the street. And we realized we're a generation removed with respect to being badass when you look at what stealth is capable of, right? So all of these things just was, it was glaring just how tone deaf the Navy had been during the mid to late 80s, you know, because we were celebrating, as you said, Ed, the focus was Soviet threat. And that means Tomcats that go 500 miles away from the ship and shoot six Phoenix missiles at Baron Badgers and S3 Vikings that find subs along with P3s and so forth and so on. And A6s that can drop bombs, dumb bombs, by the way. We didn't have any precision guided capability on the A6, um, which cost us mightily, as you point out in your diagram there, how they were coming in low and, and basically getting their ass handed to them. You know, so... Back to Eric's original point. We come into this war thinking we're the baddest on the block and we're shown immediately that we have some work to do, both on the joint side as well as on the tactics side. So, and you mentioned our good friend, Admiral Arthur, a fantastic warfighter, a gentleman. It's amazing to me when you look at how how big he is that he was flying all of those combat sorties in an A4 Skyhawk, which has got a very small cockpit. I will tell you firsthand, I know this. If I had to eject from an A4, I would have lost both legs. I mean, the canopy rails are barely shoulder width. Um, so he is the real deal, though. He was not in the rear with the gear. That guy was a route pack six bomb dropping kind of guy in Vietnam. So you have very accurately listed some of the tension points here we are. Moz is out of there. He was later Sinclair Fleet, by the way, and he's still very active around the Naval Academy in terms of uh, he runs this thing called Friends of Navy Golf. He's a fantastic <laughs> golfer. He lives at Pebble Beach. Love that man. He's done a lot to improve the Navy golf course, but that's a separate topic. In any case, the bubble goes up, not just Desert Shield, but now here it is, the boys in Baghdad, first night of the war. Boom. Walk us through some of the immediate lessons learned in terms of where were the carriers and what were the successes or failures in the first sorties that were flown? Well, first of all, I'd like to go back and elaborate a little bit about uh, the Navy's reluctance to jointness. And that affected the command relationship because General Schwarzkopf was very close to Charles Air Force General Charles Horner, who was called the JFAC, Joint Forces Air Component Commander. And Schwarzkopf said, you're going to run the air war. Okay, you're the big Mohawk. All the, the Marines, the Navy, and the Allies have to come under you for OPCON. Not, not direct OPCON, but overall operational management. And this came up early in Desert Shield because Admiral Boz was talking with Schwarzkopf and with Horner about, well, how are we going to do this air war? And Moz 
suggested, he, this comes from his own mouth, he suggested at one point, well, why don't we consider doing a root package approach as we did in Vietnam, where the Air Force and the Navy had discrete operational sectors. They were separate. And um, Horner basically came back with, F that, I will <laughs> resign before I ever go for that again. Air Force was really against uh, the separation of uh, operational control in Vietnam, which, by the way, was run by an Ab- St. Pat. This was going to be an Air Force general running the air war. So the Navy had to get on board. And uh, elaborating what you said earlier, it also affected not only was the ATO indecipherable and had to be ferried by planes to go anywhere, um, but also the, the aerial refueling equipment was incompatible in some instances. And the Navy representation and all the staffs that were involved in the air war, they were underrepresented. Before we leave that topic, because I think this is of great interest to the, the aficionado listener, about Air Force incompatibility. So just to remind us, we'll pull up to literally 30,000 feet here. So in terms of air-to-air refueling, Navy treats the receiving airplane as the male, the giving airplane as the female. The Air Force is the opposite. So, for instance, a KC-135 out of the box is not rigged to be able to tank a Navy airplane. And so what they did is they put this thing uh, on the end of it, just an adapter that had no take-up reel, by the way. It was just, you know, at the end of the mail, they attached a thing that made it into a female probe, or drogue rather, and, and that's how you would tank. And, and that became the way for decades afterwards. I mean, I've, I, I couldn't tell you how many times I've tanked off a KC-135. It's a real white-knuckle experience because there is no take-up reel. There's very little room for error when you don't have a take-up reel, meaning you plug the tanker and now you can't move very far. So that was a lesson learned. And we ripped off a lot of uh, uh, refueling probe doors on F-14s and ripped off a lot of refueling probes. You know, again, to Eric's point, we entered the war. In some cases, pilots had never tanked off a KC-135. And now they're doing double and triple cycle missions where you have to tank three and four times to stay airborne. If you don't tank, you're going to flame out and have to eject. And so it was a trial by fire big time. And so if I don't care what you think about jointness, here's your Air Force tanker. Go hit it. Welcome to jointness. You know, as things went on, people got better at it. And, you know, with like with everything else, it, it became a skill that you weren't quite as white knuckle as you went on. But now do it at night and now do it with 10 other airplanes on your wing and so forth and so on. It was This was a big deal thing. It was almost harder to get on and off the tanker than it was to go drop a bomb on southern Iraq. So, okay, I digressed. Thank you for indulging me. So there's a lot of friction on the road to jointness here, clearly, Ed, but um, you mentioned that eventually Stan Arthur wins over the respect of um, General Schwarzkopf, who hails Arthur as, quote, one of the most aggressive admirals I've ever met. And from Storm and Norman, that's quite a compliment. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that burgeoning relationship of respect and Arthur's maritime campaign. Before we get into that, I just want to make a short note about uh, Operation Desert Shield. Uh, You see a lot of histories by Army historians, Marine historians, and others who cut right to Desert Storm and don't say much about Desert Shield. From the Navy standpoint, from the maritime standpoint, it was actually very critical to final success because it was a period where we're not fighting yet. We're getting ready for for the big fight. 
And we had this embargo patrol to, to cut off imports and exports from Iraq. And we did that very successfully. We shut down uh, Iraq's ocean-going commerce. But to do that, we had to work with 12 other nations' navies. And we had to do it in a way that we didn't sink a bunch of ships, kill a bunch of civilians, merchants, mariners, and the rest. And that was carried out very well. We learned how to do fast roping down to merchant ships to take up, take over the bridge, uh, how to hail them, how to stop them. And that was important because it helped bring on the international community saying, okay, these Americans were known sometimes as being very trigger happy, but they had conducted this with great skill and no one was killed. You know, they cut off the imports. So all these other navies and other nations were saying, okay, I guess maybe the Americans are a little bit more uh, balanced and sensible in their approach this time. So that I think that was very critical to layer success. In terms of the uh, Stan Arthur's approach to the war, when he got there, first of December, and he he had a couple of missions. Number one, the most important one, as it turned out later, no one at the time knew it, was to pose a real threat to Saddam Hussein's forces in Kuwait. How do you do that? Well, you're on the ocean flank, so you have to constantly put it in the mind of Saddam Hussein that the Marines are coming. They're coming ashore. There's a great, in, in my book, a great cartoon of a, a wave with a Marine with a K-bar knife in his teeth coming out of the wave. And they plastered Kuwait with those, those uh, propaganda things. And that's what he did. Well, you couldn't just move in there. In fact, at one point, not too long before the war, there were those who thought you can't bring a carrier into the Persian Gulf. It's too narrow, too many platforms and obstructions and shoals. It's kind of dicey. Well, they, they had settled that before Desert Storm. So we had initially three carriers in there. Later, there were six altogether in both the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. So they had to establish control in the, in the Gulf proper which they did up to a certain point. They didn't want to go too close to Kuwait because the war hadn't started yet. So that was uh, mission number one, to pose this maritime threat with sailors and Marines and their, their equipment. Another objective was we didn't know which way Iran was going to go. You know, Iran was hostile to the United States and hostile to Iraq. So the fleet was there actually to guard the maritime, the right flank of the whole coalition, if you will. And there were times we had uh, Aegis cruisers, new threat upgrade cruisers that were in there, plus allied ships that had anti-air capability. And they were constantly on the watch. They called it the Zagros Gate Guards. Uh, there was, a, I guess, a valley in the mountains in, in Iran where aircraft could come in low, pop up over that, and before you knew it, they're on top of you. Uh, they had to guard that threat throughout the war. It was never tested. Iran never never tested uh, the maritime presence. And it was tested by Iraqi aircraft only once. Two Iraqi F-1 Mirages came down the crease between uh, AWACS, Airborne Warning and Control System, Air, you know, Air Force aircraft, and Navy uh, systems, both surface and air in the Gulf. They all picked them up, and the decision was, well, let's give it to the Saudis to shoot these guys down, which they promptly did. So Saddam only tested the, uh, the aerial umbrella once and decided that's a no-go. So once they had 
the Navy had, Stan Arthur had established control in the central and southern Gulf. <clears throat> it was to move into the northern Gulf. And we, we did that with um, operations beginning against the, there were a number of islands in the area that had Iraqi troops on those islands, fortified uh, troop deployments. We sent in various frigates and destroyers, Nicholas comes to mind, Leftwich, Kurtz, and others who had uh, SEALs on board and, and Marines and various landing parties that went ashore, captured the first Iraqi prisoners of the war, and basically established a presence in the northern Persian Gulf. At, soon afterward, we had uh, a number of surface ships and helicopter teams. Now, here's where jointness and uh, combined operation, multinational operations, come to the fore. We had we teamed up with British uh, naval forces. They had their uh, Lynx helicopters with sea skewer missiles, air-to-surface missiles. We had our SH-60 lamps, but the lamps didn't have the same kill ability that the, the British did. So we we teamed up. We had better radar, if you will, surface search radar. And so those teams took out a, a number of Iraqi naval vessels. In fact, by the end of the war, we had absolutely destroyed the Iraqi Navy, 130 ships, <clears throat> vessels of one type or another. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> and we had, more importantly, sunk the 13 missile carrying boats. Those are the ones we were afraid of. They could launch surface-to-surface -surface missiles against our ships. Every one of the 13 was taken out by the end of the war. I, I just want to point out the graphic on page 15, which is the Coalition Naval Forces in the Persian Gulf on 17 January 1991. Um, because you you brought up something in passing, Ed, that is, is seriously watershed, and I want to make sure that that point isn't, isn't missed, which is we have aircraft carriers in the Gulf proper. So my first deployment, 8485, aboard the USS Independence, CV, not CVN, CV62, you would have never thought to go in the Gulf. We were hanging out in the North Arabian Sea. The threat, as you mentioned, was Iran. The idea of going through the Strait of Hormuz into the Gulf proper was like a suicide mission. Fast forward six, seven years, and now because of the sortie count that you've got to provide to the Joint Command, time, distance, all kinds of things. You not only have one aircraft carrier, you have upwards of three in the Gulf. And that graph, those those silhouettes are almost like the actual size. I mean, you know, it's it's very tight. Having operated in there, uh, my last deployment, we had three American carriers and one British carrier doing Operation Southern Watch in the Gulf. You know what doesn't play nice with others? An aircraft carrier. You know, those things don't go together. There's no such thing as joint carrier operations in terms of launching and landing airplanes. And so that's pretty hairy. We had what we called CVOAs, carrier operating areas, and that was how you deconflicted. But to your point, the navigators were freaking out. The, the, the uh, tactical action officers were very much, as much as we had an eye on Iraq, we had eyes on, on Iran. This was a first. So we've talked about ATO, jointness, joint tanking, operating in the Gulf proper, brand new. And, and so that's how we did it for the balance of my career. Now, when somebody in shops Fifth Fleet, 
you know, a thing that didn't happen, that didn't exist back then, it's not irregular for them to be in the Gulf for the duration of the deployment. And, and uh, I'd like to know. talk about another first, too, this, this first night of the war, the launching of Tomahawks. You had Tomahawks being launched from surface ships, submarines, uh, USS Pittsburgh, SSN, I forget the number, but they're in the Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean, they're firing Tomahawks. Ships in the uh, Red Sea, ships in the Persian Gulf were all firing Tomahawks. This gave a new lease on life to naval surface warfare. Absolutely. You didn't have to worry about a gun getting 15 miles down the road. Uh, these could go hundreds of miles. It really gave a new approach to naval warfare that's still with us. Another thing, one of the, I think of the first or the second day of the war, we lost uh, an aviator who was actually laying mines up in the uh, Alpha area. He was shot down and killed. And that was the last offensive mine operation to keep the Iraqi Navy from coming out of, of the shot al-Arab. And I asked Dan Arthur, well, why is this? He's well, there are too many damn mines in the area anyway. I didn't want to add to it. So he just was never comfortable with offensive mine warfare, which I think goes to a reluctance throughout naval history of using mines in that way. Just a, an aside here. The, uh, the other thing, in, not only did we control the northern Persian Gulf uh, before the, the blue went up for the, the ground war, but we also brought in the two uh, battle wagons, Missouri and Wisconsin. And now we didn't know where the mine, we knew the Iraqis had laid a lot of mines out there, but we weren't quite sure where they were. Stan Arthur had lobbied General Schwarzkopf in Desert Shield in the early stages of storm to say, we've got to know where these mines are. We're going to move ships up there and Marines on board, you know, transports. And Schwarzkopf said, I do not want to trigger the war prematurely, so I don't want you overflying those areas to look for mines. So we were somewhat in the dark about where those minefields were. Um, we got up there, and of course, as we know now, Princeton and Tripoli both hit mines. Uh, no one was killed, but they had injuries and they had damage to both ships that I could have put them out of action. Um, so we had to be careful where the other ships went. We did not have to worry about the two battleships. Huge, you know, thick armor, and they just moved right up to the coast and opened up with their 16-inch naval rifles. And you think, well, battleships. I mean, we hadn't used battleships since New Jersey and Vietnam, and that was only one one-time thing. But these were modern battleships, if you will, because they had technology. The unmanned aerial vehicles could actually help spot the fall of the shot. And the great story, but uh, we had UAVs over the beaches in Kuwait. And for one, one example, you'd see a, a truck carrying food, rations to the troops on the, on the beach. They'd stop at one bunker, drop off the food. They drive down the road past four bunkers, obviously unoccupied, so we knew where the troops were to hit. And the UAV could just sit there and, and adjust the fire as it came in. Very effective. Another example, and I wrote, in fact, we depicted it with a drawing by John Roach in our book, uh, Philaka Island. An Iraqi brigade was on Philaka Island, and they were getting plastered not only by the surface ships, the battleships, but every returning strike that went into Iraq or Kuwait, if they had unexpended ordnance on the way back, they'd drop it on Philaka. These guys are getting plastered day after day after day. 
At one point, they see a UAV overhead, and about 100 Iraqi troops got out of their trenches and surrendered to this robot, maybe the first time in, in military history. <laughs> so these were modern battleships from that standpoint. We have to give a, a nod to the British. They were our most important, uh, maybe that's not politically correct, but they were the most important naval ally of the war. Uh, HMS Gloucester was there. The Iraqis fired two silkworms at the, the ships out in the Gulf, and the crews on board, the radar operators and the rest, they shot one down, the other one just fell in the water. But um, they were guarding the battleships, and they did yeoman work in that regard. Also, going back to the earlier point about uh, air control in the Gulf, you had a 1,000 aircraft going all over the place, allies, Saudis, I mean, you name it, uh, U.S. and others. How do you prevent blue on blue? Really difficult. You know, we had thousands of sorties throughout the war, but we had uh, Tom Marfiak, former director there at Naval Institute, and uh, he was on board Bunker Hill, Aegis Cruiser, and they maintained the air picture over the Gulf throughout the war. Not one, not one blue on blue accident occurred during the war. Phenomenal record. As the war went on, we rolled back the integrated air defense system and we could operate with a little more impunity that that uh, didn't keep some folks from getting shot down. Particularly, we had a Tomcat shot down off of Saratoga, VF-103 Tomcat off of Saratoga. Two guys that uh, I, I know well, Larry Slade was taken POW and his pilot, Devin Jones, was, re- was picked up by the uh, CSAR Hilo. You know, this was real conventional warfare, something we haven't seen in the post-9-11 wars with respect to people getting shot down and, and SAMs and all the other stuff that came with Desert Storm. You know, another thing about the deployment in the Gulf of the naval forces, sometimes people who are uninformed will write that the mines actually stopped an invasion of Kuwait. Now, that is absolutely incorrect because quite early in the war, General Schwarzkopf and Admiral Arthur and a few others, very few others, said, we're not going to do an amphibious invasion unless we really have to. If the Marines are an extremist in Kuwait, we're going to go in. We've got the 4th and 5th MEB, the 13th MUSOC, I think was the third formation. We've got reinforcements. If we have to, we can do it. But it could be really costly to the amphibious forces, to the Marines and sailors, number one. We'd have to destroy the infrastructure of Kuwait, the port, and the beach resorts. Plus, there was a liquefied natural gas plant right in the middle of things that would have created holy hell. Just a very difficult place to do an amphibious landing. So the mills didn't, the mines didn't stop it. They were reluctant to do it in the first place because of the likely cost. But they could have done it, too. We did have minesweepers that were clearing lanes, uh, you had the battleships operating up close. So it's um, it's not true that the, the mines stopped the Navy from doing its thing with the Marines. Yeah, but you mentioned earlier the propaganda leaflets that were dropped uh, on Kuwait with a Marine with a K-bar in his teeth. Schwarzkopf very much wanted the Iraqis to believe that there would be an amphibious in Sean-esque uh, landing, right? And that's what allowed him to do the left oh, hook. They, they did it. Hook, yeah. Hook line in the right. So let's talk about the end game. Let's talk about the end game uh, here. Saddam Hussein bought it. He had seven divisions facing out to the to the ocean, to the sea. 
and they were basically useless when the Hail Mary pass came around their back end. So he, you know, Arthur accomplished that mission, kept the Iraqi attention focused on the Persian Gulf and not the desert where our main punch came. What Emma Winnefeld uh, stated in his proceedings article, he believes, is maybe the greatest strategic decision of modern history was President H.W. Bush's uh, decision to not press the advantage, kind of, you know, as Truman to MacArthur, we're not going to keep the tanks rolling. Saddam has complied with uh, the, the terms of surrender, hold what you got, victory parade, boom, desert storm complete, or at least the hostilities phase. Um, and then we know that some of the resonant effects were an ongoing presence in Saudi, in Kuwait, in the region by American forces. The Operation Southern Watch went on for a long time until it was rendered moot by the invasion of Iraq. Um, and some would say, or by his own uh, claim, Osama bin Laden said he was radicalized and fired up by the Crusaders remaining after Desert Storm. That's what made him start Al-Qaeda. You know, So that's uh, something that we might want to consider uh, going forward with respect to what are the unintended consequences of mm. presence. But that's subject for another day. You've hit a lot of the high points about what were the first evers and things that really did set the tone for the 21st century military. Um, is there anything else that uh, that we're leaving out here? Well, I just like the post-war period is just equally important. But going to the, the actual end of the conflict, uh, Stan Arthur believes that, and I, I agree with him, that the reason why we were so successful on the diplomatic front is to keep all the we had Morocco, Egypt, and other Arab countries involved in defeating this aggression. And the deal was, the objective was to retake Kuwait, liberate its people, liberate its government, and get the Iraqis out, period. That was it. If we had an unintended consequence where Saddam's regime collapsed, great. That was not the objective. We can look at it 2020, but I think at the time that was the right decision. So that's Weinberger doctrine, right? I mean, that's complying with the Weinberger oh, doctrine. Absolutely, end of end of game, end yep. of war, you know, op operations. Huge lesson learned there. Absolutely. <laughs> the uh, post-war period is important from the Navy standpoint as well. We really led an international uh, grouping of ships from Japan, Germany, and others to come in and help clear all those 1,200 mines that were spewing throughout the area, and also the clear of the port, Kuwait's port, to get it back in business and you know reconstitute the infrastructure. Uh, the Navy was a big part of that. Now, did the Navy learn the lesson from its lack of attention to jointness before the war? Yes. In two examples, uh, two or three years after Desert Storm, you had Commander Naval Forces Central Command became a permanent billet with a three-star admiral in charge. A year later, we had the Fifth Fleet established. So there are two examples. The Navy did learn the lesson. Also, in terms of operating jointly, uh, the Navy got a lot better and, and put, not pushed, but uh, got a stronger presence on the staffs, air tasking order staffs and the uh, joint operations air staffs, which showed showed well later in the Balkans. No, absolutely. But it also showed well during Operation Southern Watch. As I said earlier in the show, the 
LNO, the Navy rep gig, was not viewed as a good deal because you were out of the cockpit, right? And you'd hang out in Escon Village uh, in Riyadh uh, for an extended period of time. And it was a rotating duty. But what we on the end of the food chain realized that if you didn't have a talented officer in those billets, that the ATO would come out and you'd be in the rear with the gear. You know, you weren't getting any of the choice missions. So you had to advocate for your airplane's capabilities um, because a lot of times the Air Force thought that the Eagle, you know, particularly the F-15C was the be-all and end-all in terms of the ability to do the front edge, you know, offensive counter air missions. Because to your point about blue on blue, they were like, well, you you don't have onboard identification friend or foe capability. And the Hornet guys were like, yes, we do. And where did you get that rumor? And so they had to, you know, sort of inject truth into the mix and then make sure that we were getting good missions. So you had to have a front running officer to do that. And and so we realized that that's a necessary pain that you have to go through in order to get the most effective missions. That was a lesson learned. And then the ATO piece, we got the hardware in our carrier information intelligence centers that allowed us to download the ATO electronically. What a concept. And so that was another major lesson learned of, uh, of Desert Storm. Well, Ed, this has been most illuminating as always. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. It's been too long a time for the listeners. Um, Ed and I worked together on Admiral Arthur's oral history. I handled it on the uh, Institute's end. And we got to um, have a wonderful talk with Admiral Arthur out in Chicago. That uh, Ed hosted a wonderful Q&A. It was very well received. And yeah, he's a, he's a king among men. He really is. King Arthur. There you go. And it was a pleasure to be able to interact with him. And that was through you, Ed. And this augments nicely your piece in the magazine, which um, I found brought back all sorts of memories of what seemed like only yesterday. And now, lo and behold, it's 30 years ago. And thus do current events become history in the passage of uh, time. Uh, Ward, it's fascinating to hear your personal insights of all this, too. That really adds a a ground-level insight to all of it. And I think that uh, that's something the listeners should pay attention to as well. With the big picture that Ed's giving us and the immediate um, in-theater action that Ward can speak to, uh, this has been a really great uh, discussion. And I hope other people get as much out of it as well. And I hope they will read your cover story in the current issue of Naval History, Ed. It's a real illuminating piece that runs down the basics of this pivotal turning point in modern naval history. And I look forward to working with you again, Ed. We'll have to talk about doing something again soon. Well, thank you for having me on your program. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it does seem like a long time ago now, 30 years, but uh, <clears throat> and a lot's happened since then, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq too and Afghanistan. <clears throat> but it was a, uh, a remarkable period, in not only naval, but American military history. I mean, one of the most successful campaigns in our history and the Navy was certainly a major part of that success. When your life becomes history and when your airplane is now on a stick in front of the front gate of a base um, instead of on the flight line, you know it's time to hang up your spurs. All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again very soon. <laughs>